Well, this is another well-attended event. Um, for those of you who are standing, there, you're welcome to come across. There's room back here. I'm afraid we don't have seats, but you're welcome to uh, sit. Um, and I'm sorry we can't fit more seats into this room. So good evening. Welcome to the Center for the Study of World Religions. Uh, my name is Charles Stang. I'm proud to be the director here. And let me begin with a very quotidian um, reminder. Please silence your cell phone. In fact, I'm going to do this. I don't have mine. That's even better. Um, please silence your cell phones. I'm delighted to welcome back to the center Professor Chakravarti Ramprasad, this time to deliver the center's annual lecture on the Hindu view of life. Professor Ramprasad was supposed to give this lecture last March, but a late winter storm threatened snow, never arrived, um, but we had to cancel the event. So we're grateful to him for his patience and for agreeing to reschedule. This annual lecture evokes the memory of Dr. Radhakrishnan's book of the same name. He was, in fact, the speaker at the opening of the center in 1960. This new annual lecture aims to address urgent issues of our time from a perspective informed by the insights and values of the Hindu traditions. Underlying the lecture is the confidence that these traditions have much to offer the wider contemporary world. As is fitting for the center, the lecture often includes attention to the Hindu view of pluralism and the other religious traditions of the world. We owe this annual lecture to the generosity of Mr. Akhilesh Gupta, Senior Managing Director and Chairman of Blackstone, India. Mr. Gupta came to Harvard as part of the Advanced Leadership Initiative and was kind enough to establish this lecture series at the center. Unfortunately, Mr. Gupta's travel schedule precludes his joining us this evening. We did invite him, and he sends his, re his regrets and looks forward to watching this uh, video. But we have his words. We have his explanation for the gift that supports this series. He notes that the value of the Hindu view of life is not simply because of the very ancient origins of this wisdom, but because of the universal message it contains for all times and all peoples. The lessons of Hinduism's core tenets are as, as relevant for the modern world, Mr. Gupta affirms, as they were in ancient times, appealing to a wide cross-section of people from the very scientifically oriented to those with a devotional bent of mind. Mr. Gupta adds, in this spirit, it is my privilege to support the efforts of the center in promoting interfaith dialogue and the opportunity for traditions to be learning from one another. Those are Mr. Gupta's words, and we're grateful for his generosity. Previous lectures, I'm sorry, previous lecturers have included Professor uh, Vasudha Narayanan of the University of Florida and Professor Arvind Sharma of McGill University. I'm going to invite to the podium my friend and colleague, Frank Clooney, Parkman Professor of Divinity, and my immediate predecessor as the director of the CSWR. Professor Clooney will introduce Professor Ram Prasad, who will then take the podium for his lecture. And assuming there's time, Professor Ram Prasad will field questions after the lecture. Thank you again for coming out this evening and for joining us for this important event.
Uh, two things to begin. The first thing is that Professor Stang didn't realize that I was away in March, and it wasn't possible for me to get back for the lecture. So Professor uh, Ram Prasad and myself used our spiritual powers to suck in this snowstorm over Cambridge, Mass., and it canceled the lecture, and then we said, okay, we'll keep the hurricane away and we'll do it today. So that was the first thing. And secondly, I understand there are many uh, BC students here today, um, as well as distinguished professors, Professor Brad Bannon and Professor Catherine Cornell. But great to see BC students. I used to teach at BC, so I'm very happy to, to see the crowd here today. Welcome to all of you. So I turn to my business now of introducing Professor Chakravarti Ramprasad who first studied his BA and MA at the Sri Satya Sai Institute in India, and then did his MA and DPhil at Oxford. Uh, his interests are quite wide-ranging. He studied politics, sociology, and history in India before taking the doctorate. Um, his fields of expertise are quite um, amazing. Um, and this is some of it his self-description, but also things I found Indian, that is to say Hindu, Buddhist, Jain, philosophy, comparative phenomenology, epistemology, metaphysics, theology, and philosophy of religion. Also in the contemporary scene, religion, politics, and conflict. Also South Asian religious identities in contemporary Britain and the conceptual sources of modern Hindu uh, beliefs and, and lives. I also found at his website another list of um, things that he is interested in, and each of these, I won't uh, take the time to it, is, is documented by programs he's been part of. He's been the chief investigator for this and chief investigator for that. But I'll just read a little bit of this just to give you a feel for the range of his interests. Uh, narrative and philosophical explorations of emotions in classical Hindu texts, conceptions of bodily being in classical Indian thought, theories of self, theories of consciousness derived from classical Indian thought, uh, dialogue, interreligious dialogue, its possibilities and limitations. Religion and politics, particularly in the contemporary scene, uh, both inside and outside the constraints of the modern liberal Western experience. The comparative study of Indian and Chinese philosophies. And he was one of the founders and leaders for a number of years at the American Academy of Religion on the, the, the group that is bringing together Indian thought and Chinese thought instead of always going through the West a quite creative project. Um, he has published widely and greatly. He has uh, many papers in many distinguished journals and book chapters on subjects, as I just said, in modern and pre-modern Hinduism, politics and religion, Hindu and comparative theology, comparative studies of metaphysics, epistemology, and philosophy of mind in a wide range of journals. Um, we were arguing before about whether he does more books more quickly than I do. And I think he's winning at the moment. So I can't read all his books to you. But his first two books, I believe, 2001, Knowledge and Liberation in Classical Indian Thought. And then 2002, Advaita Epistemology and Metaphysics, an Outline of Indian Non-Realism. And his most recent books, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Divine Self, Human Self, The Philosophy of Being, and Two Gita Commentaries. And then 2018 just arrived, I believe. Human Being, Bodily Being, Phenomenological Case Studies from Classical India. I just I conclude on a personal note that I think we met at Oxford maybe 15 years ago when I was visiting at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. And right from the start, I think we, we got along well. We, in some ways, have a similar sense of humor about academic life, both at Harvard and Oxford. 
And I found in every situation, Ram is always stimulating, always has good ideas, always is provocative, and makes us think. Uh, I did a book t uh, a number of years ago called uh, Comparative Theology, and I think the most um, interesting and prolonged reflection on the book and the issues it raised was the one that Ram did in the Harvard Theological Review. And I paid back the courtesy in my book, The Future of Hindu Christian Studies, in the last chapter, kind of looking forward, I singled his work out as one of the thoughtful, promising ways of doing comparative work, theology, in an Indian perspective, but not mimicking or imitating what people like me in the West do, thinking of it from another angle. So I can't think of a better speaker for the third in this series of distinguished lectures, and we now look forward to hearing Hindu view of life speaking for and against oneself. Welcome, Ram. Thank you very much, uh, Frank, for that uh, extremely generous introduction. Uh, I wonder what people are going to expect as a result of that. So I've titled my talk, Speaking For and Against Oneself. I want to begin with saying that one of the features that has often been ascribed to Hinduism in modern age, perhaps in the last 50 or 60 years, has been the thought of uh, conception of uh, pluralism, that to talk about Hinduism itself is in some ways um, a truth, a unifying truth for those who live it, but at the same time that its uh, definitional features are many and perhaps um, so highly individual according to the person who takes himself or herself to be a Hindu that we have an endless degree of plurality. I myself have written on the idea of pluralism, not so much uh, as perhaps some people in recent years have uh, treated it as a doctrine of Hinduism, as, as, a, as, a, as a core conception of Hinduism, but rather as a fact, as a historical fact, that what we mean by pluralism is that um, Hindu, what we call Hinduism now simply has evolved this way. And any theorization directly of Hinduism as a uniquely pluralistic tradition is ex post facto. It's just trying to make sense of what was never seen in that way in the multiple strands of uh, the traditions across time and space. Today I want to approach this idea of pluralism in a more personal way. As I mentioned, one way of looking at pluralism is that um, Hinduism is a particular Hinduism for each Hindu. What do I mean by speaking for and against oneself? Now, on the one hand, I think that some of my reflections on the approach I'm taking today is one that can be followed perhaps needs to be followed by all of us. But at the same time, in associating it with a talk on the Hindu view of life, I'm not making a claim for a uniqueness to the Hindu approach of, of, uh, of, you know, towards this idea, but rather to say that if one thinks through Hinduism, and in my case perhaps as a Hindu, then obviously this program of speaking for and against oneself, which I'll come to in a moment, will be followed through the particularities of the texts and the ideas 
that I take myself, uh, that come from the tradition I take myself to belong. So it is Hindu in a deeply existential way for me, this approach, and it is Hindu in a scholarly way because of the materials with which I engage, but it is not Hindu in the, in the sense of being doctrinally unique. So if at all it is something that is generally applicable, it is not because of a Hindu inclusivism which has somehow captured the universality of human thought, but rather that it is uh, a way of thinking that for each of us comes out of the uh, particular existential situation in which we find ourselves. So what do I mean by speaking for and against oneself? In a famous essay, um, uh, Gayatri Spivak uh, asked the question, can the subaltern speak? And one of the ideas that has emerged in the literature uh, following that essay is that basically to be a true subaltern, to be somebody truly um, discriminated against and marginalized, is to not have a voice, or even if one has a voice, to not be heard, which is the same as not having a voice. So that however marginal people might feel, or however um, challenged they might feel from um, those around them for the identities they hold, if a person is able to speak, then already they have some measure, howsoever mean, of privilege. And all of us here, whatever the uh, power differentials amongst us and between us, are already privileged. But to confront the fact that simultaneously one might feel the need to speak up for oneself, to explain something about oneself in the face of being rejected or um, neglected, can go simultaneously with also the experience of being privileged, of therefore in the inter intersectionalities which make up who we are, to both feel the need to speak up for the things that we feel um, we're not heard on, but also, and this is the real moral challenge, to simultaneously acknowledge that we must, what I say, what I call, speak against oneself. That is, we must reflect upon the ways in which we too are privileged. And it is very difficult, while we are on our high horse, leading the charge against the windmills of the mind, to sometimes stop and get off and try to make it on foot, to extend that metaphor beyond its usefulness. Um, it is very difficult. It's much easier to feel angry about the things that we feel need to be heard, much more difficult to say, what is it that others want to tell us? What I want to do today is to say that I want to speak for myself, is somebody who spent uh, his working life um, on Indian philosophy, trying to bring the riches of Indian thought into a global debate which is so fundamentally skewed uh, by modern history that the very thought of philosophy, the very thought of systematic 
analysis and reflection is uh, claimed to occur only in Western culture. There are, including with this university, very few departments of philosophy, for example, which include any modules courses at all on Indian thought. And so I watched my own work and the work of so many others, much greater scholarship, much greater learning and engagement with the technicalities of the text they have dealt with, simply not heard because it is said that philosophy does not exist outside the West. Either because of an ideological commitment to the very nature of philosophical inquiry as being tied to that tradition descended from the Greeks, or through a simple assertion of a cultural hegemony in which one can afford to be ignorant. So I do speak for myself, and I want to say that when it comes to this idea that systematic inquiry, an understanding of reasonableness, an understanding of what goes into debate and analysis, what goes into assessing what arguments work and what doesn't, all those kinds of features that are supposed to characterize thought, we find that in the Indian materials, and of course the whole history and complexity of Indian philosophy shows that. Although I want to deliberately take one, um, one episode uh, from uh, within a narrative in the Mahabharata to pick out one of the, perhaps the, one of the most early expressions of this very reflective understanding of what goes into uh, the reasonable pursuit of inquiry. Having said that, however, I also need to speak against myself. Most trivially, I need to speak against myself as a man. And anyone who works on, seeks to gain inspiration from the classical world, whichever civilization, must constantly, of course, confront the uh, insanity with which human culture has evolved to have 50% of the population or less completely dominate what is represented as humanity's history, humanity's ideas. What do we do? Uh, do we throw out the past? What is left? How do we look back and ask what can we make of the work that comes down to us from men to challenge the idea that men do not, in fact, own the narratives of humanity? And I think taking the genderedness of um, philosophy, of classical studies seriously is something that every uh, male academic must do. I also want to speak against myself because I am a, a Brahmin, a Sri Vaishnava Brahmin. Uh, for those who know this kind of thing, I'm a Swaimacharya. Basically, my family managed to sort of corner the market on authority and prestige a few thousand years ago, and they weren't going to give it up. Fa you know, thank goodness for the achievements of at least the Indian constitution that those privileges are not legal. But they were for a long time. What does one do? Again, there is something like guilt, but guilt is intellectually useless. I do not want to forsake the 
achievements of my ancestors, the cultural, intellectual ideas, their creation, the creativity, but how do we make it speak in a way that is simply not privileged speaking to itself? So those are the three moves I'm going to make. One way in, in the issue of uh, philosophy and reasonableness, where I speak for myself, in which I find myself because of the last few hundred years, uh, on the receiving side of indifference and, uh, and, and being ignored, not just myself as coming from the tradition, but for any scholar who is uh, a student of these materials. But I also want to speak against myself because I think a way of being a Hindu today must confront the ways in which we ask ourselves questions about who Which makes it Can somebody help me, please? I normally have a Mac. Uh, which is the button I press to make the next one? Oh, that one. So I want to thank you very much. Uh, so I want to go, pick up this example from within the Mahabharata. The uh, the great warrior Bhishma lies dying, but he has the uh, unique power to die when he chooses to. As he lies on a bed of arrows, having resolved to end his life, he instructs uh, the prince Yudhishthira, who has in fact been on the other side of the complex war that is at the heart of the Mahabharata. He instructs Yudhishthira on uh, the nature of kingship, on the nature of one's relationship to the world of power, the social and political world. In that long section, we not only have narratives, but we also have didactic portions. One of the most striking episodes is the case of a debate between um, a woman called Sulabha and a king called Janaka, not necessarily the same king as uh, the Janaka of other narratives uh, of India. Now, Sulabha is a renouncer, a woman who has given up severed all ties to the world. So she hears that here there is a king called Janaka who claims that he has had a spiritual insight, who understands the nature of reality and has brought himself to a state of detachment towards uh, the triumphs and sorrows of life, all the while without forsaking his life in this world as a king who rules the country as uh, a man who has um, a harem, as um, a wealthy person who commands vast resources. While being deeply engaged in that world, nevertheless, it, he claims, he has brought about in himself that detachment from the conditions of life, which is the greatest spiritual accomplishment in the Mahabharata. She, on the other hand, has gained not only great spiritual powers, 
but has also brought herself to this point of detachment from the conditions of life through renouncing all her ties with the world. So thinking that he could not possibly have attained such a capacity to be balanced while being engaged in the world, she goes to argue with him. So the most obvious uh, role that this episode plays is as a debate between renunciation and householder values. Can the highest spiritual good be attained only through severing ties with the world? Or can it be attained while one is in the midst of social life? But I've been intrigued for many years, and I've I've written on this uh, in my recent book as well. I've been intrigued by the fact that, in this case, the person who speaks for for these renouncer values is a woman. And she's a fascinating woman. For one thing, she has the power to change her form and shape. For another, she explains at one point when Janaka very insultingly asks her that uh, where she's come from, is she on her own because she's been abandoned by her husband and so forth? She says that no man was found who was appropriate and equal to me. Therefore, I took renunciation. And I, fought, and I was, in fact, the daughter of a princess, uh, of, a, of a king. So I was, prince, I was born a princess. I was strained by a great sage. So I have all the normative accomplishments that my position requires, and yet I took on this role. So she has a great deal to say about herself. But what I want to look at uh, in this uh, talk today is one part within it. So Janaka begins by debating with her and saying, something is wrong with your appearance. Um, How could you be so beautiful? How could you yet be wandering by yourself? You're young, and yet you are supposed to be so knowledgeable. How could all these things be? So he basically uh, says he disbelieves her. And he also says, on the other hand, look at me. I am extremely powerful, and yet I have brought myself to this uh, position. And he says in in an incredibly sort of um, macho uh, way, he says, my equanimity in the face of danger is such that on the one hand I might be uh, covered in sandal paste, on the other hand uh, somebody might chop off my arm, and yet I would treat all of this equally. So he has this very, and, and, and in giving this narrative, uh, Bhishma very clearly indicates that he, in fact, um, supports her. So Janaka just finishes this, ra- this rather problematic uh, speech about himself, being contemptuous about Sulaba, and also uh, being rather arrogant and... Um, in claiming, uh, in, 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 through uh, sort of extraordinarily uh, large claims, something about his own spiritual achievements. When Sulaba responds, she doesn't get into the heart of this argument. She later on moves into the two immediate and direct responses to him, which is to say how, in fact, it is impossible to 
gain that kind of spiritual insight while being embedded in the world, and also about uh, her background and her worthiness to be who she is. But she begins not with that, but with a statement about her own capacities. So that is what I want to talk about first. In question of gender, I'm going to be looking at uh, an episode that uh, most of those in the audience will know, which is about the relationship between Sita and Rama in the other major uh, composition, the Ramayana. And then staying on with the Ramayana, when I look at uh, the ways of speaking against myself, as it were, in terms of class and caste, and about power and hegemony, I'm going to be looking at another uh, widely celebrated and recognized problematic episode in the uh, Ramayana, and I will come to them uh, in due course. So going back to Sulaba, as I said, Sulaba begins her speech not with a defense of her own position or indeed uh, a critique of Janaka's, but first she begins by saying, I'm going to argue in a particular way. So she gives, in fact, states, gives a manifesto for what rational argument is. King, a speech is said to have an appropriate meaning, to be free of the 18 thoughts that spoiled, spoil words or thought, and to be endowed with the 18 virtues, and she goes on and describes them in due course. A speech has sophistication, careful discrimination, clear order, the presentation of a conclusion and motivation. All five of these are aspects of the meaning to be conveyed. I'm going to tell you the highest truth, King, and I shall speak to you with pertinent meaning and coherence. I will not say too little, nor too much. and I will not speak coarsely, nor unclearly. I will not use too many heavy syllables, nor say anything that starts to depart from the subject, nor say anything untrue, nor anything opposed to the set of the, high, the three values of merit, prosperity, and pleasure. Nor any words that are incorrect or harsh, nor anything outrageous. I'll say nothing extra, nor will I substitute with figurative language, nor will I say anything that is unwarranted or beside the point. And then finally, and this is for me very, very striking, I shall say nothing whatsoever out of love, anger, fear, greed, desperation, vulgarity, shame, pity, or haughtiness. That particular passage strikes me because there has been a great debate in, in Western thought about the relationship between emotion and argument. And one of the uh, sort of 20th century, late 20th century critiques of the history of modern Western philosophy is that uh, uniquely it discovered this idea that argument is a formal business of structuring one's position completely rational in being independent of the emotion of the speaker. And yet we have here not only um, a very clear statement of it, but in fact by a woman of a man. So it completely upends some of the most celebrated late 20th century feminist critiques of the history of modern Western philosophy and its split uh, of uh, emotion and thought. It's here, it is she who is telling the king that he is the one who is imminent in his commitment to the world, that it is he who lets his emotions speak for him, while it is she who is going to speak 
without any emotion whatsoever. It certainly not only disorients us in our familiar modern critiques about the relationship between emotion and um, philosophy and reasoning, but it also shows that in the midst of that great narrative composition, we have this very self-aware manifesto for what philosophical argument consists in. She goes on at other points, when a speaker and a hearer agree without any impairment about what is expressed, then meaning appears, O king. But when the speaker is contemptuous of the hearer with regard to what is being said, speaking only for his own sake, the speech is useless with regard to the other. And when one sets one's own ends aside and speaks only for the sake of the other, then suspicion arises and the speech is deficient. So it seems to me pretty self-evident that when you go through this, even these selections of verses from the episode, that we have here, 2,000 years ago, a very fully developed, thoughtful, reflective understanding of how one thinks philosophically. Never mind the subsequent centuries of great complex Indian thought which we think of as philosophy. I'm interested in this here because it is an abstract statement, an awareness in the tradition of what goes into systematic thinking. And I would really want everyone who starts their story about philosophy as ever since Aristotle, ever since Plato, and draw a narrative of human philosophical thought that goes back solely to the Greeks to say, well, try and explain this to me. Try and think about what kind of a classical culture it was that not only in a very self-aware and reflexive way expressed what it is to think systematically, but also, for some reason, chose to put it in the voice of this independent woman, no amanuensis, no um, sort of dependent of some famous man, but by the very nature of, an, of her existence, single and singular. How is it that we have this conjunction of ideas in this person? Asking that is something that is a task not only of those, who do those of us who do indological work, for, but for those who would not admit the depth and resources available in Indian materials. That's the easy part. That's the easy part because I have been speaking, uh, flouting Sulabar's rules angrily, about the role and riches and depth and range of Indian philosophy for well over half my, work, my life. It's easy for me to do that to get on my high horse, as it were. For the rest of this talk, I want to do something that is much more difficult. And it is not only more difficult, it ought to be difficult. It, if it becomes too easy for me or somebody in this position to speak, or for any of us to speak against ourselves, then we are no longer speaking against ourselves. We are too comfortable with who we are. So it, this is about the enactment of an intellectual life of productive discomfort. I want to turn, therefore, to the two examples of speaking against myself, one on gender and one on class. 
So we know this very famous episode, highly problematic. Sita is abducted by Ravana. Rama builds an army, goes through various adventures in order to uh, kill Ravana and rescue Sita. And upon rescuing her in the Valmiki Ramayana, very bluntly, without showing any affection towards her for all that he has pined away for her and all the grief that he has shown until then, he immediately says that she must prove that she has been chased, and she must do so by going through a fire. As it happens, she then uh, goes into the fire, and as she walks into the fire, it stops, uh, doesn't burn her, and flowers are showered from heaven, and Rama, who until this time has thought of himself as simply this man, this merely this man who is a prince, who has been in exile and who has just saved his wife, is told that, in fact, he is the avatar of uh, God, of Vishnu. And this, is, this has always been problematic. Now, on the one side, especially uh, in modern India, there has been um, a very easy uh, sort of patriarchal uh, response to this episode by saying... This is how men should behave in relationship to their wives. That is to say, like Rama did, we must uh, insist on the chastity and loyalty of our wives. On the other hand, there is also the obvious scholarly point to make that a tradition in which a woman who has gone through all of that has to prove herself, and that the episode, in fact, ends with her stepping into the fire, and through some kind of um, a shift to the perspective of Rama, who therefore accepts her when the gods reveal to him uh, his and her true nature, for Sita is uh, Lakshmi, uh, the divine consort of Vishnu, is, of course, a patriarchal narrative, because in the end, we are invited by the text in Valmiki to accept Rama. And therefore, in a way, there is a collusion of interpretations between Indological scholarship and a conservative Hindu response, which says, it's true. What we must take away from this episode is an acceptance of Rama's power to ask this of Sita. And I'm not going to say that that's not true. But what I'm going to say is, what do we do compared, for example, to the savagery of what we might find in many other texts of that period or before in other parts of the world? This is a question that confronts anybody working on uh, the classical traditions. What I want to ask here is, is it not interesting, however, is it not worth thinking about more that the text preserves the anger and the undiluted um, anger and almost brutal words of Sita here. It has not redacted it out. 
what does she say when Rama says this? And Rama says, how do I know that you have been faithful? How do, you, how do I know you have been chaste? She says, what do you have me hear? Why do you have me hear such harsh and violent words as a vulgar man to a vulgar woman? I'm not as you imagine me. You must trust me, I swear to you, on my own character. By the conduct of some of the women, you doubt the entire sex? Set aside this doubt. I have been tested. I could not help if, it, if I was touched by another. There was no desire involved. Only fate is to blame for that. That which was in my control, my heart, abided in you. Can I help it if the limbs of my body were under the sway of another? Bestower of honor. If after our long intimacy you still do not know me, then I am ruined forever by this. Your ignorance. She goes on. By giving in to anger like a little man, you, O excellent king, who will soon be revealed to be God, you have given honor to being a woman, given me the honor to be a woman, which I think is an extraordinary little, you know, uh, little passage that's so easily overlooked. That is, it is in the failure of the man that the character of the woman is shown, not in his acceptance of her character. It's in his failure to do so that we are confronted by how the patriarchal power of this episode is questioned at the point when it seems at its highest. So I'm not offering here an easy kind of counter to the easy critiques I have outlined. I'm not saying, let's go back and construct an entire feminist philosophy out of the Ramayana. No. In fact, we learn most when the text is intractable in its commitments. And yet, in that very intractability, it leaves the kind of material that, asks, that makes us ask, what kind of a culture was it that left these words intact for future generations? What is it that we can learn? And what we learn from this is this is no mere didactic tale. This is no fairy tale in which the guy turns out to be all right. What kind of an answer and how helpful would it be in the world of Me Too? There wouldn't be a world like that. It is the intransigence of the world, the continued perpetuation of asymmetrical gender dynamics. That is here, and it's here in a text of such great value, of such great spiritual worth to tens, hundreds of millions of people that actually I do not see any way in which a man who thinks of him, himself as a Hindu does not ask how men, Hindu men, could have continued to get this meaning wrong for so long. But you don't need to be a Hindu. What we need to do is to think of the general practice of what it is to read a text and be confronted by how the lack of resolution in the argument, the Preservation of attention in the words that have come down to us make us rethink the endless conversations in our lives today. Now, this tradition went on to keep 
asking questions of itself, just as there were medieval commentators who felt that in their devoutness, they had to find a way of justifying Rama's actions, especially by taking recourse in the divine drama that was the descent of Rama and Sita on earth. There were also texts in which the sheer moral naughtiness of this problem was looked at and worried away, although never untangled, by later writers. For me, the most extraordinary version, as many people have pointed out, is the 6th century work, the Uttara Ramacharita by Baba Bhuti. This is a a, a, a dramatic rendering of uh, the last stages of Rama's life. It is fascinating because historically it must be written at a time when there was an increasing treatment of the man Rama as God. At the same time, the Uttara Ramacharita never gives any kind of recognition to that theological potential. So it's at the cusp of the place where Rama is a man. But there is an awareness somewhere lurking in the background that he is more than that. The Uttara Ramacharita, in fact, is about the period when after Rama and Sita have gone back and he has been coordinated in a very brief time and they're happy together, the report is brought to Rama that a washable man refused to take his wife back by saying, our king might have done that with the queen, but I'm not going to do it with you. And Rama decides in the Ramayana that there can be no questions about the dharma, the appropriateness, the orderliness of his rule, if such questions are asked about him. So for all his love of her, he asks Sita to be banished uh, to the forest. And in a way, resurrecting the original problem of the uh, ordeal by fire. Bhavabhuti spends a lot of time developing this play. And whereas in the Ramayana itself, at the end when it is found, uh, when Rama finally finds that at the time he had banished Sita, she had been carrying their, their twins, Lava and Kusha, and asks her to take the test once more. She says, enough is enough. If I have been pure, let Mother Earth, who brought me into this world, take me, and the Earth opens up and she's taken away. I mean, one of the true tragedies, one of the very few truly tragic uh, ends, endings in uh, classical Sanskrit uh, literature, uh, especially Hindu literature. And then Rama continues to rule uh, grief-stricken with uh, a golden idol of uh, her beside him for the rest of his uh, period on earth until the gods remind him that he needs to go back to uh, Vaikuntha, to heaven. In Bhavabhuti, however, there is a happy ending because there are certain kinds of rules to which plays must adhere. And in fact, in the end, an elaborate 
play is set up by Valmiki, the composer of the Ramayana, but also the sage in whose hermitage uh, Sita has been living. And in fact, at the end of it, Rama recognizes what is happening. He thinks Sita is dead, but when he finds that uh, the actress has been replaced by the real Sita, they are reunited, and in fact, the story ends happily. At the very beginning, Lakshmana, Rama's brother, comes to uh, Rama and says, um, the halls have been now painted with the story of you and uh, sister-in-law up to the time of of the coronation. How far does the story go, Rama says? Up to sister-in-law's purification by fire. And Rama says, quiet! What need had she of absolution who was wholly absolved at birth? Neither sacred water nor the fire require purification by something else. So, in Bhavabhuti, we have Rama saying, gosh, was I wrong, and wrong all over. He's still going to commit that same mistake again, but he's going to do it in a completely different emotional tenor, not because he thinks of himself as the man whose wife needs to be uh, shown to be chaste, but only because whatever it costs him, he wants the kingdom to run according to the rules of Dharma. And Rama in the, in, in the Uttar Ramacharita is a wretched being. He is full of grief for what happens. But already here, just before he goes and sends Sita away to the forest and asks Lakshmana to take him, take her when he hears the story. He hasn't heard the story. He's only thinking of the past. And he says, how could she be purified? So who was wrong here? Well, I am wrong. I should never have asked it. This is completely wrong of me. That, of course, is a direct commentary by Bhavabhuti on the incident in Valmiki. So here is a man saying, basically, this Rama was wrong. This Rama might not be Vishnu for Bhavabhuti, but for pretty much all of the reception history of the Uttar Ramacharitam, it has been that Rama of the Uttar Ramacharita is the Rama recognized as Vishnu's avatar. And it says something for a tradition in which basically God is wrong and God admits it. When he has said that and he sees Sita. This is still before the second banishment. He says, Dear Queen, born of a sacred rite who came out of the earth, I beg your forgiveness. This respect I offer you, I will for the rest of life. Those for whom true wealth is family honor must conciliate their critics. That inauspicious thing I was forced to ask should never have been asked of you. And he says, Let it be, husband. Let it be. And then, the word comes, and the whole thing goes, the, the story unfolds, and then finally, the, when the play is held, um, at, as, at the very end, the, act, the, 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 the women who are acting the role of Mother Earth, who is Sita's mother, and the river Ganga, who is the goddess of the family of Rama, step out, and the real Mother Earth and the real uh, river Ganga the goddess River Ganga, substitute the, the actress who is Sita with the real Sita. And Rama can't believe it. And he says, what is this? Although Rama is guilty of terrible wrongdoing, these two blessed ones 
have shown him mercy. To my mind, and I'm a Sri Vaishnava, my name conveys what my family have thought about Rama and the gift of Rama. Nothing bespeaks of the potential of this creative discomfort as saying, ah, my family deity is Rama, and yet for me, the Uttara Rama Charita, which has this Rama saying, I am guilty of terrible wrongdoing. This is not a mere historical accident that somebody wrote a play about the same character uh, without, without thinking of him as God. This idea of Rama as divinity is something that happened in the native tradition. We scholars don't need to follow that. Maybe so. I'm not here into the reconstruction of the text history of these materials. What I do want to say is, it is undoubtedly the case that for countless numbers of Hindus, that episode is the ep- an episode which happens in the narrative they have of the figure they worship as divine, as the two figures they worship as divine. And they look at this material. What are we to do do with this? What are we to do with this um, literary commentary on a theological fact? It is, for me, it seems, an important thing to question even God. Because if God is a representative man, it is all too easy and it is all been too, all too easy for Hindu men for too long to think that certain kinds of patterns of conduct are the modeling of themselves on Rama when it comes to saying this is uh, the Rama is the man on whom we model ourselves, to which I want to say, and how often have you said, I'm guilty of terrible wrongdoing? Wouldn't that help you being a, a, a follower of Rama as a model if you do that? It's in our tradition. The last case I want to look at is turning uh, to the question of uh, class, of hegemony, of the Brahminical worldview that is found in the Ramayana. And this is yet another of the great episodes that have caused discomfort and have caused apologetics to be written over many uh, centuries. And this is when, in the course of searching for Rama, Sita, um, uh, Sita, Rama uh, and his brother Lakshmana meet uh, Sugriva, uh, this uh, monkey warrior who says that he has been thrown out of his kingdom by his elder brother Valin, who's threatened to kill him, but that if Rama helps him regain the throne, then uh, Sugriva will help with his monkey armies to go and rescue Sita. And the story is that actually Valin is the elder brother, he holds a kingdom. One day he goes to fight a demon and takes Sugriva with him. There is a great shouting and a river of blood flows out of the cave in which Valin is fighting with this demon. And Sugriva decides that it must be that his brother has been killed, uh, puts a, 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 a boulder against the cave mouth, goes back and says, my brother is dead. Uh, I have to take over the kingdom. And he takes his elder brother's um, sister, uh, wife, as uh, his second queen. But in fact, it's the uh, demon who has been killed by Valin, and Valin finally manages to uh, push aside the boulder. He comes back, and in his turn, beats up Sugriva because he's far stronger than Sugriva, and chases him away, and takes Sugriva's wife as 
his second wife. And Sugriva is wandering in the forest when Rama comes, when he comes across Rama. And in the battle, Sugriva cannot defeat uh, Valin. And finally, Rama, from hiding, shoots down and kills Valin. And Valin lays, lies dying. Rama shows himself. And Sugriva then spoke these words, severe words, albeit civil and consonant with righteousness. And he gives this whole set of arguments. I did no harm to your dominion. I did not insult you. Why have you killed me? I'm a forest-ranging monkey. We live on roots and fruit. This is our very nature. Whereas you're a man, a lot of men, land, gold, silver are reasons for conquest. What do you gain from, a forest, um, from the forest fruit that belongs to me? King, men do not touch my... They don't eat me. So there's no reason why I should have been killed. Then he goes on and says something. Those are all self-deprecating words, and now he says something very much stronger about himself. If you had fought me in an open fight, prince, I would have killed you. You would now be gazing at the god of death. I would have given you, Ravana, not killed in battle, but bound round the neck for that same outcome. You killed me, wishing to please Sugriva. In a previous battle, in fact, with Ravana, Valin had shown himself to be, um, more, uh, to be stronger. Is it, it, it is fitting that when I go to heaven, Sugriva should obtain the kingdom. But what is not fitting is for you to have killed me unjustly in battle. And what happens is that um, Rama gives an argument about, look, these are the reasons I have um, fought against you. And actually, I don't have the time to go through the, the details. The that the tradition itself has always understood is that Rama's arguments are not that convincing. He basically accuses uh, Valin of things that Valin has just explained as to why he is that way, particularly to do with his feeling being this vanara, this kind of uh, monkey-like human, this kind of indeterminate uh, animal which is less than human and certainly less than um, the royal uh, warrior that Rama is. But puzzlingly and st- very strangely, once Rama had finished stating that he has hunted Valin as an animal, Valin is deeply disturbed, but responds with hands cupped in supplication and says, you see the nature of things, know the truth, and are devoted to the well-being of people. Your immutable judgment on deed and consequence is gracious. What does that mean? The tradition has always struggled with this idea that when Valin is accusing Rama, the arguments are very powerfully marshaled on his behalf. When Rama responds, the arguments are not very good. And yet at the end of it, Valin says, yes, you are right. I submit to you. Basically, the, the tradition has spent its time trying to, in effect, uh, offer a theodicy, offer an apologetic for why Rama, which the tradition then regards as the divine on earth, could do this. Now, the reason why I think we ought to look at this in a very different way is that Valin represents... 
on the one hand, a king, a warrior, powerful, far-sighted, emotionally cogent, represents somebody who is well drawn out, who is a person in his own right. He's not a cipher for uh, marginality of lack of power. And yet, by the very nature of the construction of the world of the Ramayana, he is, of course, a subaltern. He is less than human from the perspective of Rama. And this is a creative ambiguity about the nature of the Vanara because obviously you can't simply talk of them as monkeys because they have all this power, they have these capacities, they speak. And one of them, of course, Sugriva's Lieutenant Hanuman, is the greatest devotee of uh, Rama. So there are all kinds of creative questionings about the boundaries of what constitutes humanity. What is really potent, however, is Rama's perspective, is the perspective of a king, the perspective of a man of power. Even if he is wandering as an exile in the forest, he interprets that as looking after this realm on behalf of his brother who is on the throne for the interim. And from his perspective, Valin is a subaltern who speaks. Is he heard? Not really. He's not heard because Rama then gives him an argument which is simply weaker. And yet, of course, the tradition resolves the question by Valin accepting Rama. Now, my uh, argument in a, in a paper that's <coughs> coming out soon is that we, we should actually see two different things going on. That on the one hand, you have a socio-political commentary on power, which is to say that the nature of the world is such <coughs> that those with power at the top of society will justify themselves in the weakest of terms in the pursuit of their ends. It is in fact a criticism of the concept of dharma, that it can be with the strong, with the powerful. With the powerful not in physical terms, because in fact Valin judges that he is actually physically stronger than Rama, but powerful in the cultural sense of having the capital to interpret what is right and wrong. But there is a different kind of argument going on, which is the theological perspective that the ways of God are mysterious, that Valmiki, that Vali, sorry, concedes to Rama, not because Rama is a persuasive human being, but because he is a mysterious God. If we see it that way, we can see that the text is already foreshadowing what it is to concede to the mystery and awful power of God and to live with that mystery, to live, therefore, with the sort of task of acceptance of what happens in life, but only by delinking it from the earlier argument, which is this powerful critique of social power, will we accept that to have faith is not to arrive at it from a position of power, but from a position of weakness. That Valin is, at the end, a true devotee, not because he could argue and win against God, 
but because at that point he gives himself up to God. But that theological perspective is not a concession to the rightness of Rama's argument as a man, as a king, as having power. And again, a tradition which is very sophisticated in its capacity for redaction, which multiple uh, versions of this uh, narrative episode exists in the Ramayana versions it's themselves, but also in subsequent retellings, never gives up on the story. We are meant to be confronted with the difficulty of this episode. We are meant, in other words, to not easily assume for ourselves that this is about how the upper caste man wins out. In fact, not unless he is God, which raises a whole bunch of different questions. But it is not about the rightness of dharma, but its ultimate questionability. And the story of Valen tells me, I think, that, again, the assertion of certain kinds of upper-class Hindu, upper-caste Hindu values is based on a fundamental uh, misunderstanding, a making superficial the depth of questionability deliberately built into Hindu materials. It's recognizing when the text speaks against our presumption about our place and position and power that it speaks at its deepest and most profound. So it is in these examples that I want to find a way of enacting in scholarship this complex and ever-challenging intersectionality in which I find myself, and each, in your own ways, will find yourselves. Thank you. Yes, yes. So that's why Rama had to kill. Exactly. That's right. Uh, yeah. Between the Greek mythology and Hindu mythology. So now one of my, I'm a botanist, a biologist, one of my colleagues, he draws some similarity between Ramayana 
term of price. So, mm-hmm. so probably you are familiar. Sure. So do you have any well, so on the first one, um, yes. So again, the most obvious location for those kinds of arguments about uh, violence, power, and so on is again an apologetic. It is to say, well, we have to justify why Rama did this. But again, we can read against that and say, yes, that's one way of expressing the deepest fears of um, a hegemonic group, that the more you try and directly confront those you consider to be inferior, the greater the trouble you're going to get into. So I would prefer that as a more uh, deliberately difficult reading than the obvious reading, which in its context is simply a theodicy. Uh, Yes, the second thing is, of course, we we know that there are many Ramayanas, and then by the time you get to Southeast Asia, there are all these different versions. That's why I I particularly looked at examples that, for me, uh, might, for all the scholarship with which one might approach it, nevertheless is something that I was introduced to as a Hindu. So I wouldn't have the same relationship with, with the Jain tradition in this context. Uh, I might, might be very different when I'm teaching them the wonderful collection of essays called Many Ramayanas for my students. That's a different approach. On the third, uh, oh, I mean, it's a large question about, uh, I mean, after all, there is this idea that there are only seven stories and all kinds of, I'm not a specialist on uh, origin myths and so forth. Uh, at some point, of course, there, are, uh, there might well have been Indo-European um, sort of prototypes from which it came. But I think either you, the only way in which you can confront that is through a very careful, uh, lifelong engagement with the textual history. And alas, I have no Greek. Um, this, if you don't do that, then for me... Uh, the possibilities of that there might have been uh, sort of ways of comparing uh, make sense only if you know, well, what for? What for? And I think the, the, the academic project with which, in which that is found will determine the usefulness or relevance of those kinds of comparisons. Treated as such, yeah. Yeah, what I broadly call subalternity, yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, these texts are influential for the reason that they are endlessly giving, aren't they? 
And uh, if you were looking at animal ethics, I mean, in fact, former student of mine is, is writing a book on uh, animals in the Mahabharata, uh, sort of saying for this exact reason that you, you <laughs> from a slightly different perspective, this can re get read uh, as questions about um, ecological rapine, about what it is to, uh, to be hurt back by the very nature that we think we have the right over, you know, I think that can be done as well. So I, 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 for me, the interesting thing, therefore, is that it's the multiple interpretability of, of violence, personally, as well as the narrative context in which it occurs, and each of the, each of those lines, I mean, once, the more you read each line, of course, I was just brutally bunging in a few lines and ignoring the way in which it develops, not only for its literary functions and subtlety, but also because Every sentence allows you to think more carefully about what relevance it might have. And of course, you know, the, the hermeneutics of your project determines what you're going to find in it. But I think Valin does these different things at the same time. Cannot speak. That's right. So that's why we then have to uh, look more carefully at the, this uh, sort of role that the Vanaras as a category play. Because that is, again, exactly the question about what subalternity is. You know? uh, would it not be better if they, they can speak you know, if, when the forests of Indonesia are being cut down? What if an orangutan spoke? Uh, to which the brutal answer might be, they'll still be killed. <laughs> you know, we kill people who speak. Uh, so in, in a sense, um, what is being s done by the speaking? I mean, somebody asked me this question about, why are you using violin? What about the washerman? He's a true subaltern. You hear him off stage. We know he's a washerman. He really has no status. And yet upon him... The entirety of this episode, the whole story turns. Without him, where are we even going to have how we interpret that last act of Rama? And I said, that's why we want to ask, you know, which way we want to confront the nature of violence speaking. He's a king. He's powerful. So is that to do with that underlying disquiet that the point about why those in power are afraid of those who aren't, is that they suspect, rather, that the people who aren't in power could all too easily have the very qualities which are, they are, supposed, which are denied of them. So I think that by, again, having these different kinds of things, so he's a king, he's very powerful, but at the same time, he's a monkey. He can speak, but he's a monkey. Uh, these different ways in which you keep the use of the monkeyness of the Vanara king is a way of keeping pulling back against all the qualities that you find in him. And that is, it seems to me, to be the classic move of every hegemonic narrative in the world in the past and the present, which is, oh, but he is such and such a thing after all. I mean, I, <laughs> I remember I was told by a very apologetic friend of mine about how, uh, you know, this was 30 years ago in Oxford, and somebody, uh, says, oh, who, who's that bloke wandering around in the, this tweed jacket? And 
This woman says, well, you know, he's a Brahmin, you know. He's still a wop, though, isn't he? <laughs> and he, said, he was a horrible man. He said this, that, and the other. And I said, well, you know, it's easy for me because when I think of all the slights of my ancestors have wrought on everybody else, that's okay. I'll, I'll take it on the chin. But what does it say about England being a country in which in the 80s somebody could say that? It's not about how dare you say that of me. How dare you say those things? That's about you. So it's that same kind of thing. After all, he is, is that classic move. And I think that is the exemplification. It can be positive. You know, here is a monkey. But in the case of Hanuman, even a monkey becomes, in fact, a greater devotee than any human being could possibly be. A bear becomes a greater uh, uh, you know, devotee. An eagle becomes a greater devotee. So you can flip, of course, the, the valorization. But the fact that these are always these marginal figures makes us makes animals become very relevant in this context. That's right. So for me, I think uh, one of the, um, the most savage inventions of European modernity was the idea that dialectic ends in synthesis. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't have the knowledge. I know about the, uh, it, it's, it's slightly different in Kamban, but that's not far enough in, in, the, in the very narrative, many narratives there are on this. Yeah. I, I wouldn't speak on it. Uh, Dr. Knight, you know. Yeah. Um, thank you for, for your talk. I have two questions. Um, one is a substitute and one is a PhD. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the substitute, the question was about spatial and and it strikes me that that is a comment not about honoring history, but you, that, that Rama has foregrounded my being a woman. Um, That's a good way of putting it. It's a translation, but it strikes me that in context that it's about you are a little man for simply seeing me as a woman, a woman. not as someone who has something to do with um, So that would like Sure, that's the translation. Although it's still consistent with what, what that translation is. reflection uh, that prefaces or foregrounds uh, dissent, questioning, um, do you think uh, that these things uh, could, could be uh, institutionalized in the, given the present state of 
the variety of truly institutional Catholicism social media has at times. Uh, do you think, or do you think that it's a good thing, if these things, this sort of theological reflection or institutional analysis of Catholicism can not merely be Well, um, there is a danger and there are possibilities, but both individual and institutionalized questions, right? Um, I think, for me, the danger with the institutionalization of this, let me put the danger first, is that it leads to synthesis. It leads inevitably back to ways in which institutions find ways of eventually persuading themselves that it is consistent with uh, where they already are. Are institutions capable of questioning themselves to the point where the power on the basis of, on, on the basis of which their institutionalization is premised is itself threatened? But if one then thought uh, better something than nothing, and in the immediate uh, sort of pragmatic sense of the term, could we say if more of the Swamigals and Acharyas and Sankaracharyas and so forth could speak more about this, might that make a difference to some extent to the unquestioningness of power structures that is so <laughs> such a major feature of Hindu society today. Um, I suppose from day-to-day -day basis, if you're going to have two, three, four generations of people who come in with a particular assumption about where they sit in relation to the Ramayana or its episodes, and then are made to think about this, if, if that becomes a way in which they can gradually start challenging themselves, maybe then indirectly the institution's power is itself somewhat shifted over a period of time. But I'm more concerned about how we will simply have the perpetuation. Once you get people to do this as part of that very system, you're going to find a way of bending it back. That's why, in a way, I have slightly uncharacteristic individualism about this, which is to say, uh, you can reconstitute yourself fundamentally, uh, but institutions probably cannot. Yeah, first one. Yes, I, I should have been careful because I slid over something that in other places I've talked about much more about <laughs> knowing the importance that particular cultural traditions have attached to the notion of guilt. Uh, it was perhaps too quick of me to, to do that. I, I, all I can say is for myself, it seems that the full force of guilt is expressed in the either 
a paralysis of agency, or the um, putting so much importance on the need to escape that guilt that it derives action from a place of profound selfishness, whereas uh, the morally useful, efficacious actions are those which, of course, derive from others. So in a way, it might flout the idea that you use people not as ends in themselves, but as your ends. So that's the deep structural worry I have with guilt. Uh, well, that that uh, goes into that large contentious area of what the formal classification of Shruti and Smriti does. In yeah, no. Well, obviously, it's um, observed more in the breach than in obedience of it, uh, and I, uh, I think we have to look at the. There is a very interesting question about the tension between the Shruti Smriti distinction and how it's actually played out in history, just as an intellectual point. But from within the Sri Vaishnava community, there are endless numbers of answers to why that is allowed, because there are so many um, sort of positions about the multiple sources of authority. You can always, of course, invent a fourth, fifth Veda. That's one move. But you can simply disregard that. Uh, and you just have poems. You know, for example, you know, Vedanta Deshika's uh, Hansa Sandesha in the 14th century um, is all about Rama is in the forest. He's still searching for Sita. And he tells this, this goose to go f fly to... to, to uh, Sita to take a message in the in the in the usual poetic convention of the goose messenger, but that is of course done with a full blown awareness of a Vaishnava theology in which she is Lakshmi, he is a, he is Narayana, but they don't of course doesn't know that at this point, and his grief is uh, reforged as compassion, so that Karuna now moves really from the sense of the tragic to the sense of compassion, because very often he makes the association between that and daya. So, you know, explicitly bringing out the direction, the theological direction of this situation, for example. And in doing so, he has simply textually enacted a, a complete disregard for the supposed lesser status of the Ramayana and the episodes in it. 
it's just there. So I've never found that anything more than a, a, it's a particular historical conceit which needs attending to for the ways in which traditions restructure themselves. And different Hindu traditions have different ways of relating to that formalization. But as far as the Sri Vaishnava tradition is concerned, it's probably one of the least bothered by it.